take that Bible this morning and look over to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And we're going to finish that chapter this morning on the healing of the official's son. According to the writer of, of the Gospel of John, John the Apostle, this is the second sign of seven that he will reveal that displays before us the identity of Jesus Christ. John is super clear in his gospel that he wrote to us that we would believe in John 20, 31, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that believing that we would have life in his name. And so really he writes to foster and further our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned that it's the second sign and the first sign in chapter 2 in 1 through 11, Jesus turned water into wine. In fact, if you look back there in chapter 2 in verse 11, it just says there that this is the first of the signs of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And as we come to chapter 4 this morning, as I mentioned, this is the second sign. Let me go ahead and read our text for you this morning. And I will be reading from chapter 4, verse 43, down to the end of the chapter. It says, After two days he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And so he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water uh, wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked him that hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. Now this is the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. <clears throat> and so there you have it. The healing of the official's son. Now, John selects this event, event at least in Galilee, number two, that once again displays the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, the main point in the healing of the official son is to display his miraculous power, to display his divine majesty in ways that only that God can do. And as he does that, as he shows that power, it is to lead to saving faith. Now Christ is going to be revealed here at the end of chapter 4 as omnipotent God in the healing of the official's son. It's going to show his power. 
It's going to reveal who he is. It's going to reveal, as I mentioned, his omnipotence. It isn't an affirmation of his deity. Now, when I say omnipotence, we are dealing with what we know to be one of the attributes of God. God is said to be an omnipotent God, namely that he's all powerful. And there's different ways to categorize God, if you said it that way, or at least to define him in the scripture. The Westminster Catechism asked this question, what is God? That's the question of the catechism. And then the catechism answers that question. And at least this definition says that God is a spirit, infinite and eternal in his being, unchangeable in his being, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his wisdom. And then it says infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his power. But it declares from the word of God, as it puts that together, that God is infinite, he is eternal, and he is unchangeable in his power. And this is, of course, the testimony of Scripture. It says in Psalm 147, verse 5, Great is the Lord and abundant in strength. He is great and he is abundant in strength. Scriptures, time and time again, affirm God's omnipotence. But certainly, God's omnipotence does not mean that to say that God could make a rock so big, that would be the question, that he cannot move it. I mean, if you answer yes, then you affirm something God cannot do. He can't make a rock so big that he can move it. If you say no, he can't make a rock so big, then you state that his power in some way, according to the question, is limited. But of course there are some things that God cannot do. It says very clearly in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2 that God cannot, what? Lie. He cannot lie. So if you ask God to lie, he can't lie because obviously it's inconsistent with his character. We know from our study in the book of James, in James 1.13, it says God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. So according to the scripture, there's things that would be inconsistent for the character of God to do or to perform. In fact, in Numbers 23, 19, it says that God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. In other words, he can't lie, nor can he repent. If he had to repent, then he would have to change his mind. And the scripture says that he's immutable, that he's without change. So scripture is clear that he's He's omnipotent. And so when people ask if God can make a rock so big that he could not move it, they reveal their foolishness as to who God actually is. Now the Bible describes God's omnipotence in the word, and it uses this word, it's called almighty. Almighty is a name for God in the Old Testament. 
you, of course, if you've been around the truth for any bit of time, you remember that one of the names in the Old Testament was the name El Shaddai. El, of course, is the Hebrew term for God. Shaddai is the term in Hebrew for Almighty. So it is to say that if you said he's El Shaddai, he is God Almighty. It speaks of his immense power. In fact, in the book of Genesis in 1711, when Abraham, or Abram at that point, was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and he said to him, I am God Almighty. And he used that term. Of course, when you get to the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 1.8, there it says, does Jesus I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And so he's omnipotent. There in Revelation 4.11, the four living creatures, day and night, do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. But he's called Almighty. This is the testimony of the scripture. In fact, the psalmist says in 62.11 that power belongs to God. So to say that God is all-powerful is to say then that nothing is too difficult for him and that all things are possible with him. In fact, when Sarah was told that she would have a child at 100 years old, the Lord asked her, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? And the answer is no. At least if it's consistent with his character and his nature. When God was instructing Moses that he would go feed the nation of Israel that had 600,000 people at that point with meat, he asked Moses in Numbers chapter 11, is the Lord's power limited the answer of course is no when the angel in the new testament pronounced the birth of jesus christ in luke chapter one there when he was going to be virgin born the angel said for nothing will be impossible in other words he can do all things can god can the person of christ in fact the disciples were so astonished at christ's words to the rich young ruler about entering the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember when he said it is impossible, right? For it is, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Then they said, well, then who can actually enter? And Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. Okay, so God can do, beloved, anything that is consistent with his nature anything consistent with his purposes and the scriptures say that nothing is too difficult for him and so the question is we think about his power then in what ways do we see his power displayed and I'm I'm using this as we come to this passage because Christ is going to demonstrate his power but certainly when we think of the scripture and we think of what way do we see his power displayed well certainly We would see it in creation. I would say that. In creation. We know in Genesis 1-1. 
the Bible declares that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We like to say in theology that he created the world ex nihilo. He created the world out of nothing. And so his power is revealed in the fact that he created the universe in which we live and that he did with nothing there. In fact, the artist that has tools who works, he has brushes, he has a canvas, he has paints, a builder has wood, stucco, he has mortar, joints, nails. But understand, beloved, that when God created the world, he created it from nothing. That's power. There was no material cause. In fact, God said in Job 38, where were you? This is what he said to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set the measurements since you know? Or who laid the cornerstone when the morning stars sang sang together? So beloved, the truth is, is that nothing has been made without his design. And without his execution. Psalm 89, 11, It says this. That the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that it contains. Psalm 89 says you have founded them. And you created them. You have a strong arm. And the hand and your hand is mighty. So beloved he's powerful. He created the world. He created it ex nihilo. You say, well, how did he create it? Well, he just spoke it into existence. In fact, when you look in the book of Genesis in 1-3, it says, God said, let there be light. And there was, what? Lights. In the Hebrew, when you track that, those are the very same phrases to show that the instance of the divine word was the appearance of his creation. In other words, as soon as he spoke it, was as soon as it came to be. In fact, all of Genesis 1 down through verse 9 says, and it was so. And in verse 11 of Genesis 1, it was so. And in verses 14 and 15, it was so. In other words, God spoke it and it came into existence. That's what the text says. Augustine, the great church father, or Augustine, called that the divine imperative. The world was created by the power of God's voice. I mean, that's power. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. In other words, he spoke it, And it came into being. Psalm 33, 9 says this, that he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Jeremiah in chapter 10, verse 12 says, does God speaking there, thus saith the Lord, it is he who made the earth by his power. That is why he is El Shaddai. Isaiah 44, 1 says, I am the Lord. And I, he says, am the maker of all things. Stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Beloved, that is power. 
power. He created it. And He created it with the spoken word. The great theologian Stephen Sharnock said that speaking of God that He did, He said, quote, with more ease make a world than we can form a thought. Amazing truth. But not only does He create the world by His word, but He also maintains the universe by His Word. It says in Hebrews, speaking of the power of God in Christ, that He upholds all things by the Word of His power. And again, you know that He not only created the world, but He sustains the world. I mean, if you just consider the sun, it has a surface temperature of about 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit, that is hot. If it were any closer to the earth, we would burn. If it was any further away from the earth, we would freeze. He made it all. Our globe is tilted at, a, at the exact angle, the exact angle of 23 degrees, which enables us to have four seasons. If it weren't tilted just such vapors from the ocean, would move north and south eventually, piling up monstrous constant continents of ice. So listen, he created it. He did it by just a spoken word and that even this day in which we live, he is holding it together. In fact, Jesus Christ is the one who holds it all together. It says in Colossians 1.17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So, beloved, just one aspect of his power is the created world. He created it. He spoke it. He sustains it. But there's other things that reveal his power. Certainly, salvation reveals his power. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? The power of God unto salvation. Salvation reveals that power. We could also say that next week will be Easter Sunday. And I just encourage you, as David said, of course you have to bring a friend. Bring a friend Friday night if you can. Bring a friend Sunday. Because the resurrection, according to Ephesians chapter 1, is a demonstration of the power of God. Okay? You know, I was just, I was just thinking as I'm standing here, I had the wonderful privilege to take in a, a tennis tournament yesterday of professional tennis players. And on the one hand, it was an absolute delight to be there. Just, uh, you, you know, you're watching, watching this guy named Djokovic, play, the number one player in the world, play the number three player in the world, Nadal. And whenever you're in an event like that, you're, you're watching, at least that point, men at their craft. And one of the things that strikes you is in this large tennis stadium is the cheering that goes on and the service that goes forward. And one guy hit on his serve 136 miles per hour. And of course, the volley would go back and forth. And after a number of times it going back and forth, people would rise to their feet and applaud. Obviously, the best players in the world. 
But you understand when you talk about power, he just said, let there be light, and there was light. He's let, let the waters teem, you know, and then the waters appeared. Let the fish appear, and they appeared. Let the sun, the moon, and the stars, and they appeared at the power of his spoken word. And his power is at work in salvation. His power is at work in the resurrection. And most people won't even get up on Sunday. And so we celebrate uniquenesses of human power and miss the power of God. But I submit to you this morning, as I intro our text, one of the greatest ways that the power of God has been unleashed on this earth is that His power has been unleashed in the person of Jesus Christ. And John, as we come to John chapter 4, selects this this account here in the healing of the official's son for a very specific purpose. He wanted you to see the power of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And of course, that power revealed in Christ displays His deity. In other words, the power to create in the Old Testament is now realized in the New Testament in the person of His Son. And the reason I say selects, it's the second sign of which He did in Galilee, but we all know that He did so many miracles that in one text of the Gospel, He did so many that He said, remember, I suppose that if all the books wrote them down, we we couldn't contain them. And so He selects, do they not? Each of these Gospel writers, to their own end, these miracles that display something of Christ. And what we're going to see this morning is the power of Christ displayed for the purpose that you might believe. So I've arranged this text around three features in the healing of the official son that demonstrate the power of Christ that leads to, to a saving faith. That is John's purpose in this gospel. I want to look just with you at the setting of the miracle, okay? Then secondly, the seriousness of the miracle. And then thirdly, the significance of the miracle. And on the one hand, you just look at it and you say, it's a miracle, okay? And we're going to walk through this miracle. But on the other hand, it's absolutely fascinating how John packed this together. And and I had to read... Just pages of pages of certain arguments in the text here that people just don't know what John was quite doing here or why he said exactly what he said. So I have found this text very, very interesting. So let's dive into the text. Let's look at first the setting for the miracle. The setting for the miracle. Look at verse 43. It says there, that after two days, he departed for Galilee. Now, that's not hard to understand. After two days, he departed. You say, well, where was he? Well, you remember back in chapter 4 there, if you go back to verse 40, it says that when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there, what? Two days. So after he had wondrously saved the Samaritan woman. A revival had taken place. 
many people from her town believed. They said, Jesus, will you come? Will you stay with us? He did, and that he did for two days. So then what he does is he heads, he heads north from Samaria. And you say, well, where is he going? Well, he's going back to Galilee. You say, well, why is he going back to Galilee? Look back at the beginning of chapter 4. It says there that after he had spoken to those disciples in chapter 3 and had spoken to Nicodemus, it says in chapter 4 in verse 3 that he left Judea and he departed again for what? Galilee. And so that trip began in chapter 4, 3. And now... Two days after being in Sychar, he's going back as he intended to, to the area of Galilee. From Sychar to Galilee, or actually to Cana, which is where he was, is about a two to three day trip, roughly about 40 miles. Now he's on his way back to Galilee. And here's one of the questions that comes into the text. Look at verse 44. And it's put in parentheses, the editor did that, not the original languages. I don't actually think it's needed, if you will. And I'm reading from the ESV. It says, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Stop there just for a second. He's going back to Galilee... Because a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. It almost doesn't make any sense. He's going to go back there because he doesn't. Now, in the ESV, you can see there in verse 44, it says, For Jesus himself had testified. If you're holding an NIV, it doesn't use the word for, which is wrong, actually. Because the for is in the original language. So that literally what he's saying is, I'm going back into my hometown and I'm going back into a place that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And it presents, as I mentioned, a dilemma. It presents a major problem. And there's just pages and pages written on this. Why does he go to where he has no honor? Why does he go back into his own hometown, as we read, and go back to the place where they're not going to show him honor? And there's different ways. There's probably at least 12 different statements that some of the scholars believe as to why he went back to Galilee. Some of them say, and you know, I don't want to become over dogmatic, but I do think it's very clear why he went back. Some would say that he, he was going back there Because he wanted to evoke the belief of the Galilean people. In other words, he wanted to go back into his hometown. Even though his hometown would reject him. Because it shows you that he is in fact the savior of the world. And he's going back to evoke people in these people. His own people. A belief in who he is. In other words, this argument would say. In spite of what they say. The Galileans. He goes. Other people would say, in verse 45, look down in the text. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans, it says, welcomed him. Which brings you to another 
uh, potential. When I say problem, there's never a problem with the text, right? When I say a problem, it's, there's never a problem because it's inspired. But people say, well, how does that work? So, so on the one hand, he goes to Galilee, but the prophet is without honor in his hometown. But when he goes to Galilee in verse 45, they actually welcome him. And so he was prophetically going into Galilee, some would say, because though they previously rejected him, he knew that they would receive him, and so he, he went there. Well, you can write all you want on what this means. <laughs> but I think it's very clear what it means. And, and the answer is in the text. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 4, do you remember at the end of chapter 3, the popularity of Jesus was on the rise. And that he was beginning to overshadow John the Baptist. Do you remember that? And they said, Rabbi, look back at 326. He was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Do you remember the disciples of John were concerned that as, as he began to point the way to the Lamb of God, the people begin to leave the Baptist and they begin to flow to Jesus. So remember as we came into chapter 4-1, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for what? Galilee. So, well, why did he go to Galilee? Well, it seems pretty obvious to me. His popularity was on the rise. He doesn't want to be made the king. It's presumably early on in his Galilean ministry. He has much work that the Father wants him to do. So rather than going to a place where they're going to make him a king, he decides, if you will, at the end of three, to go up north to Galilee. Why? He's going to go there because a prophet's without what? Honor in his own town. In other words, he wants to go spend time with his disciples. He has work to do that the Father has asked him to do. And so as he's on his way up to Galilee, he gets diverted, if you will, on his trip with the Samaritan woman. And that's all of chapter 4. He finishes that appointment with the Samaritan woman, and now he's going up to Galilee. Well, why? Well, he's going there because he doesn't want the fanfare at this point in his ministry. And so listen, 43 and 44, pick up the thought that was expressed in chapter 4, 1 through 3. The Samaritan woman then was an interlude for his trip back to Galilee. And if you can grasp this, then the verses that follow make sense. Now look at verse 45 of chapter 4. I'll explain that. It says, So that when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. Now, the text here says that they welcomed him. Now you got another problem to, to answer. 
He went because he knew that the fanfare wouldn't be there. In fact, John's going to show they're going to end up crucifying him later on. And it was much of his own people that raised the thought to kill him. But he comes in this place at verse 45 and they welcome him. But I want to tell you that the welcome here, I think, is a touch of irony of the Apostle John. It is a superficial welcome that they give to him. So as he comes into Galilee, they welcome him. The the, the idea here in the language is they receive him. And so they do receive him, yes, okay? But he is aware that their reception is not always met with real belief behind it, okay? They welcome him, but there's a difference between welcoming him and trusting him. Do you remember earlier, if you go back to John chapter 1, Do you remember that there? It says there that he came into his own and his own people did not, what? Receive him. In other words, he came to his own and they didn't receive him. In other words, beloved, the Galileans were impressed by the miracles that he performed in Jerusalem, but it was very insincere. It was very shallow. Go over to chapter 2 in verse 23. Do you remember that key text there? It says there in 2.23, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. And so even though they believe, they believe because of the miracles. They believe because of the signs. And so they were well aware of his miracles. Look over at chapter 3 in verse 2. There that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so they were aware of the signs. Now come back to chapter 4 in verse 45. And I want you to see something. They welcomed him in verse 45. Did the Galileans. But watch it. It says, comma, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. In other words, they welcomed him but they're welcoming him as a miracle worker. They're welcoming him and receiving him, I believe with a touch of irony here, because it says right there in verse 45, because of all that he had done in Jerusalem. In fact, glance down at verse 48. Jesus said to them in chapter 4, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And so, beloved, they liked what they saw, but they didn't know who he was. They wanted him to perform the miraculous, the sensational, the exciting, but they never quite understood his identity. So when he comes back into his own, there is a superficial welcome. There is a superficial excitement. He knew what was in their heart. He knew that unless they saw these signs and wonders, They wouldn't believe. 
In fact, go over to chapter 7. This is somewhat ironic here. In chapter 7, in verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went into Galilee. He would not go out about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Okay? Now the feast of the booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, listen to this, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. That's what his own brothers were saying to Jesus. But look at the next statement in John chapter 7, verse 5. For not even his brothers, what? Believed in him. Oh, go do the miracles, Jesus. Go show yourself to the world. But we know from the book of Acts that they were not believing until after the resurrection. So listen, they welcome him. Turn back to John chapter 4. But it's with a touch of irony. It's because they knew what he did in Jerusalem. It's because they were looking for the miracles and the sensational impact. And so they welcome him not as the Messiah, but because of what he had done. They are interested in the miracles only, okay? And so welcoming him is not the same as accepting him and trusting him. So look what happened in the text. It says then in verse 46, so he came again, it says there, to Cana in Galilee. Now, now watch this. Stop there just for a second. So he comes into this place called Cana. And this little juncture right here is known as the greater Galilean ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He launched it right at this time. And it goes from about 27 AD okay, to April of the year 29 AD. Okay, December 27 AD to April of 29. It's about 16 months in length. And he goes into Cana. Now remember in chapter 2, he was in Cana and he turned the water into wine. In fact, look at verse 46 again. It says there where he made water, he made the water wine. And then it says in 46, and at Capernaum, there is an official whose son was ill. He's very sick. So if you can imagine this, Jesus is in Cana. And about roughly, we were there a year and a half ago, about 20 miles away in the city of Capernaum, there was an official whose son was very sick. And the news reached this man that Jesus had arrived in Cana. He had performed many miracles in greater Galilee that aren't recorded here. They're recorded in the other Gospels. Now, just a little footnote. You've got a sick official's son. Some scholars believe that this is the same account of the healing of the centurion servant in Matthew chapter 8. And I'll just say it's not. There are many differences. We don't have time to look at that. But the one noble difference would be that was the centurion's servant in Matthew chapter 8, Luke chapter 7, 
This is the official's very own son in this text in John chapter 4. Now look again at verse 46. It says there that there was an official whose son was sick. The word there for official is just the Greek word basilikos. Okay? It just means a royal official. Sometimes they call this the noble men. But by that very title of official, he is probably an officer for Herod Antipas. That is not King Herod in the early parts of Matthew 1 who was looking to kill Christ. He gave his kingdom away to his four sons. And this is one of them here that this royal official years later is working for. He's working for Herod Antipas. And sometimes they called Herod Antipas a king. He wasn't really a king. He was a tetrarch is what they called him. And so here is this man. He's an official for Herod Antipas. I don't need to go into all of it. Herod Antipas, though, is the one who got John the Baptist's head on a platter. So he is working for a very evil man, okay? And he is an official for this man. And there's no question that this official was a man of great power. He was a man of great influence. He was a man, no doubt, of great wealth. And this man, likely in this area, had everything. Everything but the health of his son. And death was very near this man's door. Now there's some question, is this official Jewish? Is he a Gentile? Is he a Roman? We simply don't know. But we do know that his son is at the point of death. In other words, money couldn't buy this, this, his son's health. And this official, this Basilikos was desperate desperate and so there's the setting of the miracle and then secondly let me take you here to the seriousness of the miracle itself look at verse 47 when this man heard that jesus had come from judea to galilee he went to him and asked him to come down to heal his son for he was at the point of death here's the seriousness of the miracle In other words, this guy's not just sick, his son, he is at the point of death. And so as soon as the Lord got to Cana, this man got the news, he leaves Capernaum. He comes roughly 20 miles over to Cana because of his news of the previous miracles. And he's got to get to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look again at verse 46. It says there, excuse me, in 47, that he went to him. And he asked him to come down. Now it's a very mild word in the ESV. But it means that he implored him to come down. His son is at the point of death, beloved. In fact, you could actually render it this way. He begged Jesus to come down. And down because Capernaum was down by the sea. Down by the, by, by the Sea of Galilee. Which is really just... A lake and he begged him, he implored him. And in the language, he just didn't beg him and implore him. He did so repeatedly. I mean, he is at desperation point. In other words, Jesus, come now or all will be lost forever. Jesus, if you don't come, he will certainly die. 
And then what follows from that heartfelt plea is a shocking statement. Look at it in verse 48. Jesus said to him, said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not, what? Believe. I mean, on the one hand, I, I don't know another way to say it. That is shocking. This guy comes to Jesus. He finds Jesus. He begs him. He pleads with him. He repeatedly says so. And Jesus looks at him, seemingly indifferent, seemingly cold, seemingly, because we know he's not, but it appears cold. It, it appears detached. How do you answer that? Well, if you look then again at verse 48, just one little clue. You, you might not be able to render it here, which is where language can help. It says in 48, Jesus said, unless you. And the you there is not singular. The you there is plural. Makes sense to me in the context. Oh, he's speaking to the official. But he's saying you, plural. He's talking about all the Galileans. That this is what you want. You want the miracle. You want the sensational. Unless you, plural, see something, you're not going to believe. And so here, it comes off abrupt, but it's understandable in light of the context. The Galilean people's view of Christ was skewed. It was fundamentally flawed. It failed to apprehend his true identity and it craved for the miraculous much like today. In fact, in John's gospel, these miracles are put forth, but they don't always reveal someone's heart in John chapter 2. However, we also know that he does the the miracles, he does the miraculous, because in many times it's the miraculous that brings someone to saving faith. And so you're trying to balance, and of course Jesus knows what's in the heart of every man. On the one hand, they could be shallow and superficial, and people follow him for that. On the other hand, in many places, they are used to bring about people's faith. So I think Jesus offers a rebuke here because the royal official personifies what is wrong with the Galilean people as a whole. Do you remember even Al mentioned it last Sunday when he was with us in 1 Corinthians 1.22? Remember when it was talking about the Jewish people, it says the Jews demand a what? A sign. They always want to have a sign. They always want to have the miraculous. In fact, Kent Hughes put it this way. They were following Jesus as if he were a religious sideshow. And here's what Hughes said. Hurry, hurry. Don't miss the latest miracle. Get your popcorn here. Crowd in close, folks, so you can see the new added miracle. I think it was kind of like a a show to many of them. And there was such an extreme focus on the signs and miracles and the wonders that the people, people were missing his identity. Now, what strikes me next, though, is amazing. You say, well, what would the guy say? You seek me for what I'll do, but not because you believe. You say, what does he do? Well, look, 
He's got a one-track mind. The official said to him in verse 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. In other words, his son is at the point of death. And this official is persistent. Listen, beloved, he's out of options. He's basically begging Jesus, a man of honor, a man of power, a man of influence, if you will. And he just says, you need to come. And Jesus, this is stunning. Look at verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, verse 50, your son will, what? Live. Now here's what I'm going to say to you, beloved. Just go. Your son's going to live. Go. I don't need to go down 20 miles. Go. All he does is give him the spoken word. There are no wonders here to be performed. It is only his spoken word. You say, well, what did he, what did he do? Well, maybe I should ask, what would you do? What would you do if that was your son? If that was your daughter, if that was one of your children at the point of death. And, and I, don't, I don't want to get weird, but did he just look at him? And he just, he just spoke it to him and maybe it was nothing more than that. But I'll tell you how this man responded. It's in the text. Look, verse 50. He said, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. The man who had been relying on the miraculous now believes the word that Jesus spoke to him. And at some point, beloved, maybe it was right there. He believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus looked at him and he said, your son's going to live. He didn't ask for a miracle. He was like the Samaritans in the previous account in chapter four, that they came when Jesus came to them. Stayed two days, they said, now we believe. Not just because of the testimony of the woman, but we believe your words. And Jesus just gave this man the word. And so there's the setting, there's the seriousness, and finally here, the significance of the miracle. The significance of the miracle. It says in verse 51, excuse me, at the end of 50, he went on his way. He accepts our Lord's words. Listen, without seeing the deed performed, I'm just saying to you, I'm just trying to find out what's here. There's no arguing here. There's no manipulation here. There's no demands here. There's no threats here. He doesn't ask for a fleece to be put out. I mean, we say sometimes today, beloved, that you finish the statement. Seeing is what? Believing, not this guy. Not this guy. He trusted Christ without seeing the miracle. And for this official, believing was seen. Doesn't it remind you of Hebrews 11.1 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And so this official, this Basilikos, is now on his way back. Somewhere between a 20... 25 mile journey back home 
You say, well, what happens? Well, look at verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Verse 52, so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The Lord wondrously healed the boy of his physical desperation. And then he healed, did he not, the spiritual desperation of the official. All I can say is, is not our Lord so gracious? Is not our Lord so kind? But let me pinpoint it. Is not our Lord so powerful? He inquired at what, it, what time it was. And you can see there in the text, it was at the seventh hour. We believe that if it's Jewish time, it's 1 p.m. If it's Roman time, it's 7 p.m. You say, is it Jewish time or Roman time? Well, that doesn't seem to be the point. The point seems to be, I do think it's Jewish time. I think it's 1 o'clock though, but it's still not the point. The point is, is that the healing perfectly corresponded to the time that Jesus gave His Word. You say, well, what happened? Look at verse 53. It says there that He and He Himself, what? Believed and all of His household. He said, Scott, I think He already believed it. Verse 50, yeah? Now He believes again. I think there's a progression of His faith here. But here at this point in 53, He's putting all of His hope all of his confidence in the person of Jesus Christ. And so did his family. Look at verse 54. It says there, now this was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So let me just say this. You say, what do I, what do I take home here? Just real quick and we're done. Number one, the power of Christ wonders. Okay, It's the power of Christ wonders. It's the second sign. He turned water into wine, number one, and he healed the official's son. Now, you say, well, how powerful is that? Yeah, that's pretty powerful. He's at the wedding in Cana, and there's six jars, large jars of water parts against the wall. And he just makes wine into it. I look just for my own curiosity how to make wine. Now, I'm not going to drink it, okay? Go on YouTube and find out how to make it. Absolutely unbelievable the process of what they have to do to get those grapes, to do what the grapes do, to ferment the grapes, to put the water in, to put the temperature in, to put the chemicals in, to let it sit, then to put more in, and to put another chemical in, then to let it sit again, and let it sit again, and air vac this, and right temperature this, and adding this. All I know is he looked at the water, they filled the water and it filled up to the best wine that they ever tasted. Listen, beloved, here's the point. He's so powerful that he can change the chemical combinations of what's in the water and supervent all of the fermentation process and bring out the best water. So here in the second wonder, he shows his miraculous power over disease. You say, well, what seems to be the point? Well, this. Number one, he heals by a word. <laughs> That's all. That's power. 20 miles away, he looks at the dad 
and says, go, your son lives. And 20 miles away or 20 million miles away, he changes the chemicals in that boy's body of a raging fever to health. And I'm just telling you, he did it by a word. The God who spoke the world into existence is the God being revealed in Jesus Christ. He not only does it by a word, but he does it by a distance. Every other healer and false healer has to be there and run his shenanigans and run his sick, slick sideshow. Not Jesus. He just looks at the guy and says, go, your son lives. And 20 miles away, not just his word, but secondly, by distance, he heals that boy. That's power. And then thirdly, he just heals them instantaneously. The same hour Jesus spoke is the same hour that the boy recovered. And so who is he? He's God in the flesh. And what strikes me is not only the power of his wonders, but the power, secondly, of his words. All he did was speak the word. And here, this man placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And so I just ask you, have you placed your faith in this one? Have you come to the place where you've put all your hopes, all your dreams, all your thoughts about the future in this one. For who is this one? He is God. He is the Son of God. He is Messiah. And He came to display His power so that you would put your trust and hope and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I just ask you if you've done that today. And listen, more powerful than the miracle itself is the power, at least in this passage, both are true, of His spoken word. And that's why we're going to exalt this every week. Because it's in the words of Christ that we find the very voice of God to us. And so you've listened to the voice of God this morning through the words of Christ on the printed page.